welcome to From No to Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. With me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Limitless, a television show produced by National Geographic, is a docuseries that follows actor Chris Hemsworth as he consults with various experts in the field of longevity on how the body ages and how best to fight it. While the show provides ample entertainment in the form of extreme challenges meant to help Chris identify and improve areas of his physical and mental fitness, it also touches on philosophical themes throughout. The most powerful episode, and indeed the most powerful piece of television I've personally ever watched, is the last episode, which addresses the acceptance of death. Today we'll walk through the themes it presents. If you haven't seen the episode, don't worry, it isn't necessary to enjoy today's show. If you'd like to see it, feel free to hit pause, check it out on Disney+, and rejoin us when you're finished. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I, I think the intro covers it pretty well. Yes. But um, after I watched it, it was just really uh, such a powerful experience seeing it. And I immediately thought, we've got we've to look into this. I, I agree. And, and the fact is, well, we've got the kind of relationship where you could say to me last week, after we did our podcast, hey, would you like to watch this, this episode? And so we did. And we sat on the couch. And your cat wasn't sure why <laughs> I was there instead of your wife. But that was our... And, and we watched it. We, we watched it essentially in quiet, in silence, in, in contemplation, in, uh, we, we weren't doing the every two seconds stopping and, and mm -hmm. talking about it. And, and I think that was really good. First, because we're comfortable with each other. We know each other enough to do that. Second, because it allowed us, allowed me to take it and you to, and as a second viewing to take it in and just pay attention to exactly what was seemingly going on on the screen. So it, it, yeah, it yields a lot of thought. I wanted to talk about this. Yeah. And it, it really needs that kind of, of watch. And the thing that strikes me throughout it is just that there's a progression. There's a, there's a, a tangible progression throughout the episode, starting from the tone at the beginning and then the things that, that Chris experiences throughout it all the way to the conclusion at the end. Yeah. Um, that's, that's some of the stuff that we'll, we'll cover. So a large focus of the show, at least the first half of it, is the aging suit. What did you find most interesting about the aging suit? The aging suit, uh, which essentially what added thirty pounds to uh, Chris Hemsworth uh, and eyes, uh, uh, goggles that made his eyesight not good, uh, plugs for ears, shoes that were not. Uh, even so, he would not be able to walk with great confidence. And and I, I mean, we talked about this on on the sides after, but I, it it took me right back to an experience, one of the most profound experiences I ever had, um, working with my dear friend, director of fine performing arts at uh, the college I taught at. Um, who she when we were doing once uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, arranged with the mental health association, they have the cast go. Uh, there and to experience for a few hours uh, something simulating uh, mental health conditions. And I had no idea what we were going to be doing until we got there. And and this was some years ago, but they, I don't know, 14 years ago. And they they strapped uh, essentially a Walkman or CD uh, players up to and put headsets on us 
told us ahead of time we were going to be experiencing through our ears uh, what various mental health uh, conditions from somebody who's described it from internally. So the whole thing was a setup for what people tell people they feel like when they're walking day to day. And we had different CDs that we were hearing. We weren't all experiencing the same thing. And while we were experiencing these things, we had to walk through a set of uh, ordinary tasks. We had to do a, a math test. We had to uh, do a job interview. We had to have a conversation with somebody. You know, and But in mine, the, 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 there were the voices in the head constantly reminding me of how stupid I am or how un, un, unable I am, how, how I, why would I even think that I could do something like this? But this voice, and sometimes shouting, sometimes quiet, um, emulating what some people hear and their subconscious minds or their minds are saying to themselves and trying to get through. I barely passed a sixth grade math test. First time through, I, I didn't. Um, I couldn't fill out a complete form for a job in the time that was allowed. And I heard maybe a third of the questions mm-hmm. and was not articulate. Not that I ever am, but I usually am a little more articulate than I was in that circumstance. And it was demeaning. It was embarrassing. It was overwhelming emotionally. And we had a debrief afterward to try to pull us back out of this. And we were all just at silent at the table, mm. um, looking at the table, occasionally glancing at each other. And we left in quiet. And, and we didn't. We said a very quiet good night to each other and we just and we talked about it the next rehearsal uh, so we weren't just left, left uh, you know but you you just don't emerge from something like that and say wow okay fine and the reason I described that at some length is because that's what I saw happening with Chris Hemsworth with that suit here is somebody who's ex- uh, extremely physically trained to look like a superhero and, and goes through excruciating work. I can't even I read about what he, some of these folks go through. Um, and as you've said before, this is not somebody who's going to be running long distances with that kind of weight of muscles. And, and, but here he was fighting this as if it were something that he could get past. If he could just master the suit, it would be okay, sort of an Iron Man thing. Yeah. And, but you can't. And this is why I was deeply moved by the thing because I was sitting there thinking to him, I mean, I'm 65, he's 39. And I was there thinking at him, no, you, you, you can't beat this. It's not yeah. going, um, so that was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I think that that it is, when you watch it, it, it's, it really is very cool because from the second he puts it on, um, it's it's just wild. This suit is engineered by MIT, and it looks ridiculous. Right, he's wearing a bike helmet. He's got bungees hooked up to him and all this stuff. But because of the the shoes that make him unbalanced and his the earplugs and the glasses that simulate old age eyesight and things, you watch him move around. He looks like an eighty year old man, and like, he can't hear half of what people yeah, are saying. Yeah, the, the simulation is very convincing. You you see this just this giant you know muscular Chris Hemsworth just moving around like an an old guy yeah but early in the episode like you said even though the movements and and the 
the five, you know, the senses are dulled, the the spirit or the attitude is still that of a young, (laughs) still that of a young man, right? Yes, of course. And he goes through some things that that demonstrate that, you know, that that's not the way to think of it. You know, the Dr. B.J. Miller, who kind of walks through the entire experiment, says, you know, there's three stages where, um, you know, people try to fight the suit and then they try to adapt to it and then they accept it, right? And um, I think the thing that stuck out to me the most about it was that, yes, as you watch him and then as you see, you know, what 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 he faces, you go, okay, well, that's that's not an approach that's going to work. But at the same time, you really have to ask yourself, is there any other approach to take? Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you can't fight aging and you, you, you can adapt to aging so far, but eventually it's, it's going to get the better of you. But does that mean that fighting it and adapting to it isn't the right approach to take to begin with, right? Yeah, I, and, and that's why I'm glad you bring that up because I, I think that if if I had if I have any well, it's, it's not a criticism in the negative sense, but it is it certainly raises the issue. I, I mean, there was a death doula mm-hmm. and I have a lot of respect for people who do this. It's not always um, Women, it's not always men. It's people. Uh, it, it can be trans folk. It can be anybody. But death doula is somebody who was, he encounters what in the third, uh, second and third days. But the whole approach seemed to be: don't fight this, accept this. But I think that calls to me philosophically to, to challenge what the word fight means hmm. and what the word accept means and i i i more times than I, I i i'm not proud of it but i would often do joshing with with students uh, especially on the stage uh, or directing a children's theater show and, and somebody would say well you know you're, you're not gonna be teaching forever i, I said i'm not teaching forever but i'm gonna be alive forever you know that well i know that i know i'm gonna be alive forever, but it's not a denial hmm. of mortality to embrace the energy you have in whatever whatever stage of life you are at. Even the idea of stages of life bothers me. And I know you've been studying all kinds of things psychologically. I find it um, troubling that there are the expectations of how one would behave and this this episode was was uh, talking about how one can adapt and accept, but adapting and accepting don't don't have to mean not fighting. And fighting doesn't have to be being a warrior or something. Fighting may be the, not the right word, but res, but resisting by keeping oneself as active as possible and doing uh, uh, the things that keep one alive mentally and physically. If I call that resisting and somebody else calls that adapting, then we've got a, a semantic thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the the intro to this episode does a good job demonstrating that. They kind of do a, a quick montage recap of the previous episodes where, you know, Chris is conquering the sea and he's climbing a skyscraper. Yeah, he's doing all these crazy things. And then, you know, he's talking and he goes, so what am I going to do to conquer death? 
and he goes, well, I guess this, and he's walking through um, the the episode. Um, but yeah, I think that I think that's right, right? There's this there's this dichotomy of this notion of fighting, right? You think of the poem "Rage, Rage Against the dying, dying of the, the Light," right? Yes, yes. And I think that it is important to to dive into what that means, right? If you're looking at it as, you know, okay, well, just just don't accept death. Just fight against it as long as you can until it overtakes you, right? Well, that's one thing. Yeah. It's another thing to, um, you know, accept death is coming, but take all of all of the actions you can to to try to live a good life up until that point, right? Yeah. And it's a very fine distinction. It's something it, it that's is. difficult to, to identify. I, I, someone just unspeakably dear to me is is going through an experience that will end in death for all of our lives too but is adamant that um this is not about being a warrior that don't 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 tell me i'm fighting i'm not fighting anything i'm and you know and i i honor that and I don't think one has is a warrior in facing death. I don't find that useful. So that's not mm. the kind of thing I, I mean when I'm. This, this is why it's important to talk about these things. Yeah, because it presents it as a zero sum game, right? If you if you put it in the context of fighting, then you are one hundred percent of the time a loser. We all are a loser, and that's not really the right way to think about no, death. It, it isn't. It it isn't because well, and this is where we get into this classical philosophy. Right from the start of the, the first Western philosopher that we are aware of, and we're talking about 600 BC, uh, Thales was was talking about the uh, the inevitability. How you know Epicurus we've talked about before, and Epicurus said, "Well, essentially, there's no point worrying about this because you can't understand it when you're alive, and when you're gone, you're not going to be thinking about it." <laughs> um, and that's all well and good, but that's all still talking about the physical nature, and then, then it brings up the nature of consciousness, which I know we're going to get to with all kinds mm. of, of, of questions. But, you know, one of the questions that I find myself asking a lot uh, as I think about this, because I, I, I wake up each morning, and I don't have a ritual statement, but I wake up and I rub my eyes and say, oh, sunrise through the window. and look, here's today, got today. But I don't even know if I have all of today. None of us knows that. <laughs> but I don't find it helpful. I wouldn't find it helpful to go through the day thinking, oh, is it going to happen now? Oh, how about now? But mm. now, that, that's the way to absolute insanity. Yeah. Uh, unhingement, I think. And what, what, so you have life, but you're not going to do anything with life except thinking, oh, it's almost done, it's almost done. We don't know that. So I think to acknowledge the moment and try to live in the moment as best one can, and none of us does that perfectly, and it's a very Zen thing, and it's yoga, and it's all those things. But but I think once once acknowledged, then you get on with it. What am I going to do today? Am I going to what am I going to do with my granddaughter? What kind of art am I going to make today? Or who will I talk to? Will the conversations mean something? Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> Or am I going to fritter away a bunch of time just watching the stars? And I and I will, and I do because it's <laughs> because 
frittering is a word that ex- suggests a, a whimsy and, and a waste, but that's only because of our capitalistic metaphors again. It's, it's about not fighting, but also not capitulating to, in a sense of, as you say, the zero-sum game. Yeah, that and that touched on so many of the themes of the episode. So we're going to talk about all this stuff mm-hmm. going into it. But I want to circle back to where we started by talking about um, B.J. Miller's story of loss and relinquishing the past and embracing a new life. Um, it's one of the most powerful yeah. scenes. Yeah. Um, and that's that's one of the things that struck me about it is it it really. Um, sort of just puts out there that this dichotomy right because here's a guy who you know he was a fit you know handsome young guy going to stanford and at 19 years old um had an accident that resulted in you know both of his legs and one of his arms getting amputated and um you know had a severe rehabilitation and um you know it took him years of just this mental anguish right of trying to struggle with who he was um you know after this accident and you know the conclusion that he came to was that he had to let that old idea of him die and accept this new person that he was and you know it's just a little thing that he says but you can sense um not that the desperation but just the I don't know what the word is, but if it's desperation, it's it's desperation that we all feel, not just him. But he said, yeah. you know, I I look in the mirror and I said, this is my life, this is it, yeah. right? Yeah. And we all have to do that, right? Yeah. We all we all look in the mirror and say, regardless of our circumstances, whether we are lucky enough to be as physically and and mentally and financially gifted as Chris Hemsworth, or whether we're somebody who has dealt with physical or emotional or mental anguish, we all have to look in the mirror and say. This is it. This is my life, right? And but the dichotomy, right, is that after he talks about this, it shows him climbing through the canyons with his prosthetic legs and his dog and and yeah. doing these physical and active things that he could have done as the young, healthy man. And he's doing them. And you go, Well, he let that version of himself die. But here he is doing those things that he could do before. And it's this remarkable, um, just Again, I just sort of uh, the he's, tension there, right? Was, there's a tension. He's embracing the tension. There's there's the tension, and even though he's talking about not fighting and accepting, I don't believe. And he's a palliative care specialist. I think the not fighting part is uh, know that you are going to die. Okay, yes, but I don't think it's think it every moment. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he was trying to convey that. Uh, I think that tension he's conveying is, as you say, it's not about looking in the mirror and saying, I'm going to die. It's about looking in the mirror. Yeah. Who are you? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Um, those are the, the, the basic ontological <laughs> Yeah, and and, and he, existential questions. One thing that he talks about during that is that you know he's like he says my case is extreme, but it's just a variation on a theme. Mm-hmm. We all face struggle and loss, and it's how we adapt to it. Yeah, and that was and, true. Yeah, and you and I have talked about that on a show that we did 
relatively recently on on aging where we talked about i think that that difference right between uh, denial of aging and death and a healthy acceptance although it seems very um just like a very minute distinction it's a very important one right because i think the example that i brought up was uh, was my knee right i'm a very active person physically um, and I've talked about, you know, I think in that episode, we talked about how, you know, it's, it's difficult as you get older and I'm not old, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm older. No, but you're, you're dwelling closer to Hemsworth than I am. <laughs> yes. But as you get a little bit older and as you, you start to do the, you know, you do these physical things and you go, I can't do what I once could. Right. I think that the, somebody who's fighting it, somebody who's denying it, right. Somebody who I have been. tries to push past it and hurts themselves, right? And then tries to not accept that and tries to come back too quick and hurts themselves again and then puts themselves in a bad headspace and then it continues from there. It's not healthy. But somebody who accepts aging and and death but who also accepts life and what it is, right? Says, you know what? My my knee's not going to be able to do what it once did. My whole body is not going to be able to do what it once did but it can still do something. And as long as I'm breathing, I'm going to do whatever I can with it. Yeah. Right? What can you do that you didn't do before? And I think that's, that's part of what I took away from it. Um, no. if, if Chris Hemsworth, <clears throat> you know, I, I can't speak to what's going through his mind. I, he was, I think, authentic uh, and courageous to, to do this on the camera. You know, there'd be some people who say, well, yeah, but look at all the, I'm sure he's made lots of money from National Geographic. I'm not, I'm not interested in that. He did things that he earned money for. He did his work. Mm. But he did his work beyond his work um, by opening himself to this when he didn't have to do it. And therefore, to get people thinking and talking about this. And I think he deserves credit for that. But it's but it's a, for me at this place in life that I've been extremely fortunate to be in is is the, the, I'm thinking of your knee thing, and it is it's not the loss of what I can't do anymore because all the way through my adult life there have been things that. I've done and, and that I'm now doing that I couldn't or chose not to or didn't pursue the discipline of doing that I have now that that the younger me didn't mm. and and some of that is just the, the nature of progression and, and family and so on but some um, but some of it is no I really do want to try this now and you know with my art it's it's just an amazingly self-energizing thing. Where I want to, a marvelous human being says, "Hey, you were my teacher. You want to have conversations every week." <laughs> <laughs> and the the gift of that jewel has never left me, and and um, it makes me it gives me opportunity and motive to think hard all week long to come and do this. So we're not just spouting off the tops of our heads, you know, or, or, or to have a conversation each week with somebody who's a master and, and, and 
theater and dramaturgy and read plays that I never read before. Now, there's no, I'm not going to go out and teach plays anymore, <laughs> officially, um, or to have opportunities to work with students um, in ways that are sort of like the troll under the bridge or, or, or no, I'm outside the system, and yet those wouldn't have been happening. Hmm. And I, I just, I feel very, very joyful. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, one of the guys that Chris talks to is Gary, this um, this guy who was mm. who was a kung fu master when he was young. Mm-hmm. And he, he hurt himself and he ended up getting into to Tai Chi when he's older, you know. And, you know, I think that in the past, a younger, a younger version of me would have thought, okay, well, here's a guy who's just he's just doing tai chi because he he can't do kung fu anymore and that's yeah that's great you know good for him right but the way that the story is told you can tell and he he has this line that he says where he goes sometimes you find that as you get smaller you find something deeper that is more precious than anything that you had before right yes and you go that's that's life right (laughs) is this thing where the only time you know, I think I think the only time where you can say that that life is is bad, right, is if you've closed yourself off to to new things, right? And that can happen at any age. You don't have sure to be can. you don't have to be old and physically or mentally, you know, disabled, no, right? No. You don't you don't your world doesn't have to become small for that to happen. It can happen to people at any age if you're not exploring. And I think about you know the most enriching experiences of of my life. You were talking this morning before we got on the show about how there's a chicken barbecue in, in town, right? <laughs> and I remember being a, a kid, you know, between the ages of about six and 12, my next door neighbor was an old World War II vet. And I, he was one of my best friends. I spent my, I spent a lot of time up there. He, it reminds me of that because he had a framed um, newspaper on his wall of, of him, John Keller, hosting the, huh. the, the Perry Chicken Barbecue, right? <laughs> but you know, he had a wood shop and, and him and I, we would just always build furniture and we'd, you know, we'd sit and we, I'd always want to get out to the wood shop. You know, I'd come in and go, hey, you know, what are you building? And it was a kind of a game we played, right? Because he was in his 80s. So I'd show yeah. up and he'd be drinking his coffee at, at the table and I'd sit down and I'd just be buzzing with energy, you know, just a kid. <laughs> and I, I wanted to get out to the wood shop, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to broach it too soon because I knew I'd get shot down. <laughs> I don't, I, that was always my my in. I'd ask, so what are you doing out in the wood shop? And go, why don't we uh, why don't we just sit and talk a couple more minutes, right? I I, I my, I'm not done with my coffee, and I think Pearl has a pecan pie that she made. Yeah. You want a slice? <laughs> and I hated pecans, but she made a good pie, so I'd, I'd suffer through the pecans to eat the pie. And I'd hear him talk about stuff, right? Yeah. And then we we'd go out to the wood shop and we'd build things. But the whole experience, right? The talks that I didn't care much about ended up being these precious memories that I have now, right? Yeah. And I'm just starting to get to the age where um, I have younger friends, right? Mm-hmm. My whole life, I've had this diversity of people that I was friends with, people my age, people who are a little older, people who are a lot older, right? Yeah. And now I'm getting to the age where I'm starting to have friends who are younger, right? Mm-hmm. And my whole life, I've, I've done different things. Um, and I'm starting to get to that age where I'm going, well, what's, what's the next thing, right? And it's not an age. It's not a stage no, in life. No. And, and, and psychology is starting to debunk this idea of stages of life and, and these different things. About time. But, <laughs> but at every stage in your life, right, you look in the mirror and you go, this is my life. This is it. What am I going to do with it, right? Yeah. 
Am I going to do the same things that I always did? And if that's something that brings you joy, and if you have new ways of experiencing it, that's great. But if it's something that you're just going through, then you are you're closer to death than some of these people who are older that are trying and experiencing new things. You know? did, did I bombard you with the thing that I did with so many students? And if any of them ever remember it, then I'll just shake their heads. But you know, I, the, the little the little mini lecture on. I, I hear people, I still do hear people say this. Well, I went to high school and I got that out of the way. Now I'm going to college. Why? So I can get it out of the way. And and some of my students were slightly older students and they're saying, well, I had my kids, so I got that out of the way. Hmm. And the common theme, and I was trying to point to people, is if you're pushing all of these things out of the way as if they're all obstacles, then what, what are you headed toward? If every single thing that could be the, a point of deep and abidingly challenging and wondrous experience is just something you're getting out of the way, what, what are you after? And, and that's a deep question that nobody can answer for anybody else but for them. But, but this, this idea is, is rampant in our culture. Yeah, and Chris has one of those moments. After he hears B.J. Miller's story, hmm. he says, you know, here's a guy who, who everybody envies, right? And he says, you know, I've, for the past 10 or 12 years, I've just been working so hard that all my memories are in fast forward and I don't spend enough time with my, my family. And he, he starts to cry, right? He starts yes. to break up and you go again, right? It doesn't matter what your status is in life or what you have or what you don't have. Right. We all look in that mirror and I say, this is my life. What am I doing with it? Yeah. Right. That's an important question. And I think that it dovetails into another one of his guests um, where, you know, Chris, after meeting a young woman with cancer, he yeah. learns the importance of living in the moment, right? And that's something that, that she talks about. And this comes back to what we were talking about earlier, where she says, every day I've thought about dying, yeah. right? And you and I were just talking about how, you know, it, it, there's no value to to dwelling on this, right? But she's in a situation where it's always there. Again, is it is this another area where there's a fine distinction between a healthy and an unhealthy way of approaching it? I, I think so because her story is deeply moving as it is for anyone. What who's we we many philosophers and psychologists and doctors and so on write about this. Somehow we have this the scale of value. Um, if 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 a, if it's a child or a young person, somebody who's barely out of adolescence, which is twenty seven, as we know about development now, at least, um, it doesn't seem right, as if right has anything to do with it. But it seems, but it puts us in a position of thinking. And how many times have I done this with writers? You, know, you can't be a, a, a student of literature. <laughs> Without how many writers and artists have died at half my age or a quarter of my age and what they did and all mm. of those things. So, yeah, she's thinking about it because she has a terminal diagnosis. And to see how he responded to that, it was deeply sensitive. He was attentive mm. and, and, I, and authentically so. This moved him. And certainly she was giving him a gift. Yeah. And, and he was receiving it. But it takes me back to something else that 
that you were talking about. I think the single, if I had to single it out, the single greatest um, <clears throat> energizer um, is having friends, uh, dear people in your life of all ages. I grew up with a lot of um, people aging and, and aging not, not well um, because of a lot of life circumstances. And, and, I, and it, it affected me. It has always affected me. Um, so I have thought about age and death um, since I was 12. And so it's not, <clears throat> it's not the situation that everybody, and I don't mean brutal, awful, violent. It's, it's just people, when, when, you, when you grew up in a place that was essentially pre-Appalachian, meaning um, at the edge of the mountain, so to speak, where people have to sc scrap and scurry to put a life together, um, and you see the results of hard work with uh, you know, a lead foundry, one of my grandfathers, and exposed to all kinds of things without any masking, without any, you know, and how do you deal with that afterward? Well, maybe you smoke a lot, maybe you drink a lot, whatever, you know, it, so a lot of decay and a lot of destruction <laughs> at a time of, you know, I know what age I am and what age I, I'm older than one of my grandfathers ever made it to. Um, and, you, and you see that, but then because I was teaching and because I, I never aimed to be friends with students, but it was always a joy when a friendship would develop post-graduation or post, you know, it, um, and you have these folks in your life who it eventually probably won't happen for me. Was it people in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s and my age, uh, all the clusters of friends, many at a distance now, all the way up through 85, my friend in Florida and my dad, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm with a four-year-old hours and hours, many days a week talking. And by the end of the day, I'm talking to somebody who's an octogenarian. Hmm. And that inevitably, <laughs> the fusion energy that that creates of perspectives and, and how people are seeing things, I think it keeps you really alive. Yeah, I think so. And it's funny, I, you know, I don't think there's, there's no set path to getting there, right? Because I think that mine is probably almost diametrically opposed to you, right? Like when I was young, um, I knew a lot of older people. I, I mentioned my, my next door neighbor. Um, my parents and grandparents were a little bit older when they had children. So my, my grandparents were already older. Um, just a lot of different people I knew that were older, um, that were aging very, very well, mm -hmm. um, and lived very, very long lives. So I didn't really deal with any death until I was a teenager. Um, but throughout my life, I'd been exposed to a lot of older people that aged very well. Um, and that created a very positive impact of aging for me, right? I always idolized these older characters, the Gandalfs <laughs> and the Obi-Wan Kenobis. And I thought, I can't wait to be old. Being old is going to be so cool, right? And then when I got to be an older teenager and then through to now, right? So for over the past 15 years, there's been... Um, pretty much a rapid fire um, experience of death, right? All these older people that I knew died. 
uh, as well as my dad, who was was not older, right? He mm-hmm. had this this sort of tragic disease that that took him pretty young, yep. right? And I think that it's funny because the perspective shifted a little bit, but from the, I think I already had all this exposure to aging, and I, I saw all these people who were old from a very young age, and I had friendships, right? Not just not just these sorts of things where your mom dragged you along to church, but these <laughs> things where I was I was having conversations, I was engaging with with these people, yeah, um, and I had this positive view of aging, and then when they started to die, I had to to refocus that a little bit and think, okay, so this is what the end is, right? And you, I saw over and over again, this is what the end is like. This is what the end is like. And it wasn't similar across all circumstances, right? Every one of them died in a different way. Every one of them had a different experience. But I think, you know, what it did for me from the first time was I've thought about death every day for the past 15 years. But I think that it's it's been a healthy thing for me, right? Because I, I yep. haven't been dwelling on it. I haven't been sitting here thinking, like you said, oh, is it, it's going to happen any minute? Or, oh man, is it going to be terrible Alzheimer's? Or is it going to be right. a painful car accident that's going to be prolonged? Or what's it going to be? I haven't been thinking about that. But what I think about every day is my time is limited, right? Just Just that simple idea, right? My time is limited, yep. right? And then what am I going to do with it? It's that, again, it's that looking in the mirror. This is my life, right? And I think that a lot of people don't have that reminder that it's finite. And I'm not sure why that is, because I'm sure that everybody deals with people of different ages and, and, and everybody deals with death. Yeah. But I think that there's a mental block, whether it's cultural or whether it's... um biological or what it, there's something that is i think it's i think it's uh, par- partly cultural and this will seem like it's low-hanging fruit to attack and i don't i don't intend it to be that but we have up until <clears throat> well still really now although uh, not as in exactly the same way i think we're transitioning we've, we've had this cult of youth and i think that's what the hemsworth thing was about too mm-hmm. Uh, so he's talking to these old people, this, this guy who became a chief because his brother died in, uh, I think it was the Philippines. Uh, uh, Fiji. Yeah. Fiji. Fiji. And, and he's hearing stories. To hear stories, to take stories in, it's what, it's what our whole humanities, it's what the arts are about. It's, it's what, every branch of the humanities is about storytelling through arts, music, literature, stage. and. And here he was encountering stories directly, not, not wearing a mask and, and you know, the, just, just directly. And people who didn't know who he was. And that was, the, I think, the terrific thing. They, some of them did, but most of them, they talked, do you know who I am? Or they did you, hi, do you know who Chris is? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and to be able to encounter somebody like that, I think was... It's terrific, and I just lost my train. But I, <laughs> yeah, you know, he makes a he makes a really interesting um, observation at the end of his first day, where he goes, you know, the thing that bugged me is all these people, you know, talking to me like I'm an old person. He goes, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I hope I don't do that, right? And yeah. I think that that's anybody who has had um, an honest, genuine exchange with an older person, right, realizes that you only get a couple sentences in. 
and that age difference disappears, right? Yes. You know, you, you have this preconception about what old people are like, right? But then when you start talking, you realize that these are just people. They're not old people. They're just people. And I think that yes. probably another experience that, that had Chris in that mindset was um, he sees his wife aged 50 years. Right? That was pretty in- incredible yeah. because they did a professional. She was afraid with it because yeah. they were doing a professional makeup job, the prosthetics for the face. Yeah, it's very convincing. She looked, she looked very old. And, you know, I think that during that scene, right, I think that most of us that are watching it aren't seeing Chris Hemsworth and his wife. We're seeing ourselves and our significant others, right? Yes. Or ourselves and the people who are important to us. And I think that, that that idea of projecting that into the future and seeing the people that you love um, as older people, all of a sudden you realize that, no, it doesn't make any difference, right? It, do, it doesn't make any difference that they're old. These are the people that I love. These are the people in my life. Yes. And the age doesn't, doesn't change who they are in a way that, you know, it, we all change over time. Right. And that's right. something that we adapt to, but the age is, is, isn't a significant part of our, how we view them. Yeah. That was a very sweet, uh, vulnerable moment because he didn't know they were doing that. And she was afraid of how he would respond. Mm. And, and he didn't just, you know, put on this brave face when he, he, he was going to go, they said he, they, he had a dance partner for the, the dance he was going to, and they, don't worry because your wife doesn't know anything about this. And so he's game and he, they lead him over and she turns around and you could tell she was scared yeah. in her eyes and he looks and then he recognizes her and he's just like that. Mm. And the fact that he could meant that all, part of this was this experience that he's been having that he would recognize her because there are pictures of him old made into, you know, the, the computer generated old version of, but he's also, he's also an actor and actors are trained variously. But I think uh, one of the things, if you're trained well and you, and you, and you, and you study well is you are, are attentive to details. You, you, you recognize what a slight raise of an eyebrow might mean. You are thinking about that for yourself and you're seeing it in somebody else. So of course he recognized her eyes. He said, yeah, he says an interesting thing when he sits down with her, which was the first thing he says to her is, as soon as I touched your shoulder, I said, I know who this person is, Mm -hmm. right? And that really, that that beautiful moment sort of demonstrates this idea, right? That that age plays such a, a small part in how we we interact with with the people that we that we love but yeah this culture of youth is this i'm just quick on that but it's just i'm seeing well you know i, I watch star trek well it's on paramount so you get advertisements mostly the streaming i'm so used to not having advertisements it's nice but but i saw last night watching episodes of picard um i saw Advertisement after advertisement for people of all body shapes, for people of all ages. And it wasn't all medical stuff. Oh, here's a pill to take. Oh, here's the next thing. It wasn't. And I thought, this is different. I have not experienced the celebration of everybody doesn't have to look thin as a rail or whatever it has to be. But there's so much concentration on that. that That's part of the reason we, we veer away from old people. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think that, that we have. We're supposed to be frightened of their craggy features or the fact that their faces are sagging or whatever it is, or standing up straight. Every, anything is to, that a reminder that somehow their bodies are changing has been a point of fright, uh, often for kids, that isn't talked about. And this is what Mary Midgley, the philosopher, talks about. Many philosophers talk about this now. That if we would only have conversations with people, as you were just saying, and you get through that threshold, uh, it's it's the it's the superficial stuff that really bothers me. And I'm at the stage where it's beginning to happen, where I'll, I'll go in and have a transaction in the store. There you go, honey. Hmm. Don't call me honey. You don't know me. That's demeaning. I know you intend to do it well. That's that's, or or it's just a way to. But, but no, because that's infantilizing. That's oh, you know, we'll just be really nice to you because after all, you're getting old. I'd say something, but I can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that's what that's what the scene, the whole episode, but especially this scene with his with his wife demonstrates is just again that even if and with him wearing the aging suit. Okay, he can't see as well, he can't hear as well, he can't move around as well, but he's still Chris Hemsworth, right? He's that he's still that person. Yeah. And her experience, Elsa' ex- experience with it, is um even more interesting because you can tell from the beginning she is more sensitive to this topic than he is. The very first scene, they're driving in their car up to this retirement facility, and she says. I think Chris is underestimating aging. I think that when the three days is up, he's going to want to get out of there as fast as he can. Mm -hmm. Because she's seven years older than he is. So at the time of filming, she's already a woman in her mid-40s, right? And so, and she talks about that during the the prosthetics and, 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 you know, the makeup of her when they're aging her. She says, you know, that society is much harder on women aging. And so there's a very good chance that, um, you know, in addition to being seven years older, her experience, you know, the culturization throughout her life and Chris's life versus aging for men and aging for women represents two different scenarios, right? Um, again, like I said, when I was a kid, there was Obi-Wan Kenobi's, there was Gandalf's, there was, there was old men that I could look to and say, yeah, I can't wait to be like that when I'm older, right? That doesn't exist for women in as many ways. You know, I think that we're, we're starting to make some progress, but I yeah. think there's still a significant gap in, yeah. in how gender is involved in... in I mean, I, Jane Fonda and, and uh, Lily Tomlin and, and Sally Field and, and uh, well, there's, there's a lot of people, a lot of older actresses are taught. Helen Mirren, um, who have talked about how finding roles even is, is, is but now they're, they're social roles are emerging because we're because our population is getting old <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so um do you think it's true that we fear the loss of loved ones more than we do our own death at one point bj miller says that in the episode i do yeah i i I have an interesting, you know, again, as somebody who, who has thought about death pretty much every day, right, over the past 15 years, it was funny because Chris asked the, the young woman with cancer, you know, have you accepted your mortality? 
And before she answered, I knew what she was going to say. And I think that's because anybody who's thought about it for a long period of time um, comes to the same conclusion. Yes and no, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the more you think about it, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, the more you think about it, the more the shock value wears off a little bit, right? The same way it is with anything that we, we talk about, right? We talk about a lot of topics that are have to do with experiences of awe or sublime or things that are bigger than the human experience. Right? That's what <laughs> philosophy is. And so the more you engage with those topics, um, the less they... The, you know, the less they have that that shocking impact to you, yeah. but they never lose that that piece that, it, and I don't think that you they can lose them unless you figure them out, which is impossible, right? <laughs> if you can't figure out death, if you can't figure out time, if you can't figure out God, if you can't figure these things out. There's always going to be an element of them that you can't fully wrap your head around. That, that's it's a mystery. Mm. Capital M. The ancient word. But yes. So I think that, yeah, yeah. So I think that coming back to the question, yeah. um, I think that we fear our loved ones' deaths because if you go through life, you experience death. And so it, you understand conceptually and, and in a concrete fashion what death is. And you can see that and imagine that happening to one of your loved ones. But your own death, you can't conceive of in the same fashion and so i think that it is natural to fear the loss of your loved ones yeah. more than yourself because you can't conceptualize we don't want the to be without yourself. them and we can't really conceptualize the, the loss of ourselves and and i think mary mitchell is right in this too and others who have talked about this that it's um the the error was for epicurus and and some of the earlier philosophers from her view the error is in thinking that what we fear is pain. Well, you you know, the, 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 the actual moment of passing is not that long. Mm-hmm. If you've been, if you've been with someone, you, you realize it's, um, but the, the suffering somebody might actually be experienced going into it. Yes, there's that pain, but, but she's asserting, and I feel this, I think that's right, that, that the fear is, nothingness yeah which is why religion works for people i think um but then that gets us into an entirely different question is death natural because if death is natural then it's just a part of our 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 bodies and as you say accumulation and and a a cascade of 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 causes and effects Hmm. if death is not just natural meaning there's some supernatural element involved, then we get into the punitive nature of death, which didn't start with the Adam and I and Eve story. It was part of earlier cultures where death is punishment. Hmm. Um, but it's certainly built into the Christian tradition. And, and so that removes it from the natural... <laughs> So is death natural? Well, not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's funny because the beliefs you have about these things will change the course of your whole life, right? That's the thing that always bothered me about um, some of the Christian rhetoric was, um, you know, there's this, this notion that 
okay, well, if, if you're a Christian, um, you're going to experience a, a life of, of suffering and, and persecution, but it's all right because it'll pay off after you're dead. That, I mean, think about if you're wrong. Think about if there is nothingness after you die. How have you spent your life, right? Yeah. Which isn't to say that that to be Christian means that you have to accept that attitude. No, no, you know, no you, not there, at all. you can certainly embrace life and, and be a Christian. Yeah, absolutely. But that kind of rhetoric is what always bothered me. This idea that, oh, okay, well, don't worry about this life. You're gonna, you're, it's gonna pay off next time, right? And I think that that is a powerful tool of religions, of governments, of economic systems. That's a tool of manipulation. That's right, a tool of right. keeping people, just keep your nose to the grindstone, just do what you're supposed to do. You're going to hurt. It's okay. You'll have paradise afterward. Mm. The, the, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. And not every Christian, no, we're not, we're not speaking in, in blanket terms, but the idea is there. Yeah. And, and therefore, in some way, has to be dealt with. So that's one of those questions. Um, does death destroy meaning or does it create it? That's yeah. a question that I often hear. Yeah, answer. yeah. And I, I think that, I think we talked about this maybe once way, way back towards the beginning of the show, um, talking about if there was no death, right, would, would life have any meaning? If we were immortal, right? If there's no way for us to die, again, where philosophy flourishes for me, especially in conversations like this, is in <laughs> the extreme hypotheticals. Yep. So if there's no resource limitations, there's no cosmic interference, we would just continue to live forever in, in a state similar to this. Would life have any meaning, right? And you think, well, even if I have the most healthy attitude, right, I'm always going to try new things. I'm always going to meet new people. I'm always going to do new things. Forever is just such a long time that, you know, <laughs> we can't conceive. Right. And again, my mind always goes to music, right? I look at these frequency waves. As you and I are talking, we see the little bouncing yep. um, needles of our voices and stuff. But if I will have an interesting thing happens, if I stretch out, right, like the, the tempo or if I stretch out the, the time frame of it, all of a sudden these peaks and valleys of our voices get very flat until it's just a straight line. Just a flat line, zero heartbeat. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to. And I'm trying to hold my breath right now. Watch the line. Right. And so, it wouldn't matter. We could have this conversation, and it looks like this healthy conversation on the screen. But if I stop it, right, and then I stretch it out and I make it it's 26 hours long, it would just be a flat line. There would be nothing, right? And it's to me that's almost a good metaphor of what the issue with immortality is, right? I think the death, that limitation. We've talked about in all kinds of creative endeavors, right? Limitation is what ins gives inspiration a foothold, right? You say, I can't do that, so I'm going to do this, right? right. We, we talked about creating melodies, right? Uh, Daniel Dennett, right? If you just sit down at a keyboard and you can write anything you want, you, you, there's nothing there, right? You have to have something that you can work with, some guiding, guiding Negative frame space. of Negative space is what guides a painting or a drawing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is a big negative space, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so it's difficult, right? It, 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 does death create meaning, right? And it's, I think that you want to say, well, no, life creates meaning. Um, but I think that life and death in a, in a very Eastern philosophy sort of way are this yin and yang. They it's, are. it's this thing that you, you can't have one without the other in, in the way that we conceptualize and here, it. And here's the other, the, you talk about the, the extreme stuff. So I, I, I think about this uh, often. Uh, 
it comes to this. If, as I've said to you before, for me, if there were a post-death a, a paradisical experience, it would, it would be a library, an art studio, endless fresh paths to walk, and conversations to have. Now, I know of no tradition in which that is the afterlife. And I think when people say, well, I'm going to be with all my loved ones forever. Yeah, well, how are you going to be with them? Because, you know, uh, if we're if our loved ones is just the perfect version of all of us, then it's bland. Are we going to sit and just look at each other and smile? That's a nightmare. I, you know, or just sing all the time? That's a nightmare. I, I So I'm not interested in those versions of paradise because they don't mean anything to me mm. in, in any positive way yeah yeah and that's one thing that the episode didn't really didn't really dive into at one point the death doula asks him what he thinks about at you know what his thoughts are on what happens after death and um he doesn't really have any right he just talks about how as a kid he he tried to conceptualize nothing and it, and it freaked him out kept right. him up at night. yes yes right and and I think that that is, that's the difficult part, right? This is where the philosophy really takes hold in, in each one of us is this idea of, is there nothing after I die? Yes or no. And that creates a scary scenario. But if there isn't nothing, if there's something, what is that something? And that creates an equally scary scenario, right? You, trying, to, trying to develop even the most ideal scenario of what what you know paradise would be is frightening and i think that the only way you get out of that frightening scenario is if you put a limitation on paradise right i think anything that we conceptualize as lasting forever becomes a nightmare and something uh, that yeah you said that very well i uh, did you read the uh Alua is her name, the Destula. Hmm. There's an interview with her. No, I didn't see that. All right. And and she's talking about having talked to Chris Hemsworth. She said, I think the, the part of the challenge we have in society is because since people's relationships with death and dying, with grief, with all the rationale is all quite normalized, there's still a big stigma around even being curious about how we die or my own death. And so people tend to shut it away and not really discuss it. And my work really gives people permission to talk about that. Uh, but I, but she says, uh, my truth is that I, I can understand why people would be scared, but it's not necessarily my job to help people get over it, but rather to be with people where they are in their conversations around it. They're just normalizing it by conversing about it. They're not trying to solve it. They're not trying to say you should be a certain way. Although my impression in the episode, the thing that, the thing that bothered me is when um, she was uh, having him recite, I am ending, there is nothing. All that I have known is gone. It's like things like that. Mm. And I'm thinking, what a lonely way to have the last moment. I think of my last moment with my, my father's mother, my, my grandmother, who did live. She was the one who did live longest into her 90s um, and I was with her at a nursing home she was in very briefly and she 
and was talking a little bit with her, and it was that night she died. But she, I brought my harmonica, and she loved Red River Valley, and 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 she asked me to play, and I and I did, and then, um, the last words before "I love you" were she said, "Dance." She stretched out her hand, and I held her hand, and I played Red River Valley, hmm. and and moved my arm, and and and. And then I uh, gave her a kiss, and, and she fell asleep. Well, she died a few hours later. That wasn't frightening. Hmm. Um, now, maybe she did that for me, but I think she was doing that for herself, too. I think it was, it, it was a, a way of something meaningful before everything stopped. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. If everything stopped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, again, in the course of my psychology studies, there's there's been some very interesting research into near-death experiences. And and by near-death, they don't mean necessarily. Light. Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean somebody who has an accident and then and then comes back to, to everyday life. But it's a study of the natural progression of dying and then looking at the the empirical and tangible elements of of what that process is like if somebody doesn't return from it if somebody actually dies and what happens and um what they find is that in in the preceding days leading up to it um the person who's dying has increasingly meaningful experiences usually in the form of of dreams of predeceased loved ones coming to visit them and um and experience you know demonstrating some of the behaviors that you mentioned where um even though they may be very close to death um still wanting to um emulate or experience things that they 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 love doing in the past you know and you go the question that that the researcher raised and you could tell that it was it haunted him a little bit right is he goes the question is does this behavior arise as some sort of biological defense mechanism against death or does it point to something supernatural about it right that's philosophy right that's that's the whole discussion of it and that's what makes it so interesting but it's something that everybody has to has to you know confront on their own right and it's it it was really just um you know whether it was this tv show or the, the research i was looking at or the experience that I've had personally, it's always been something that, that has, as you know, been very fascinating to me, right? It, it is, and it will continue to be until it isn't. <laughs> so we, again, if you, if you want to watch it right now, it's on Disney plus, I don't know when you listen to this in the future, but, um, and we, we barely scratched the surface of a lot of the things that happened in it. Is, is there anything you want to, any final takeaways, anything that we, that you, you were itching to talk about that we didn't cover? Um, I think really not. I think it's those last moments when he's reciting what the death bull is saying to him, when he goes through the door. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I wasn't, I was uncertain about this. They showed a, bu- a bunch of uh, ambulance guys grabbing him, putting on a bed. I mean, I don't, if they did that to him, if they went through all of that, if they took him to a hospital, then they brought him back there or how that, that was unclear to me. What was going on? Were they describing this to him, or did they actually physically put him 
through all that. And I, and that bothered me a little bit because everything else was so crystal clear and upfront, and that was collapsed into this uh, melange of images. Mm. Um, so I, that I, that bothered me a bit. Yeah, yeah. I think there was, you know, I think that going into it, B.J. Miller there said, this is where we're, we're stretching the immersive theater to its max. So I think in that room, I think that there, they must have had a bunch of costume and lighting changes and things going on to try to simulate it. That, yeah. That's that's what I think might have happened. That's but, what immersive theory, theater would be. And so you're right. It's probably but, always in that room. But there was, you know, that, that whole scene, that end scene, there was definitely a lot of, you know, they edited some things together to make the television viewers experience more immersive and powerful, I think. And trying to picture what Chris was going through at the same time. Um, it, it was some, it must've been something pretty different, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, it was, I think that's where the, the, the format ran up against some of the limitations of the, of the medium. But I think that from the, the viewer's perspective, it, it, they did a really good job. I think that it was. And it how was, about you? Did, did you have something else that's on your mind with it? No, no. I think that we we really did cover um, most of the stuff I wanted to talk about with it. Really, you know, those there's just those those couple of big topics um, that arose. This idea of um, how do you let go? You know, yeah. how, how do you embrace death without obsessing about it? Right? How do you? Um, how do you think about aging and aged, you know, people, um, all those different things that we talked about. I think that those are the, the main takeaways that, and the big points. Um, and I think we did a good job covering them. So until next time, keep partying.